What's up, guys? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's Dan, and we've got Nath. What's happening, Nath? Uh, you alright? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, real good. Real good. And Baba Popular Demand, and here to stay, Mr. Sampari. Hi, guys. How are you doing? You alright? Yeah, not bad, man. We've all just met, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> For today. We've all bonded. Um, here we are. <laughs> Rock new, man. new dynamic. Right, so today we're going to talk about Donald Trump. We put it to a poll, or we asked you know, the Twitter followers, shall we talk with Donald Trump? You overwhelmingly said no, but you know, here we are, Nate. It's not your podcast. <laughs> and, you know, think about how Americans feel, you know, when they woke up, you know, they, they didn't ask for Trump and they got him anyway, so, you know, let's we, see how you like it. We took a leaf out of Trump's book and thought, you know, we don't really care what you think, yeah, we just do what we want. It was an empty gesture. Should yeah. we talk about it? We're going to talk about it anyway, so, just like everything else I do, like, um, it's like when you say, do you want a cup of tea? And you're like, please don't say yes. And I was back yes. on that when he came over, actually, I didn't have any, like, provisions to provide you with. First it. time I came over, Nathan was like, do you want some tea? I was like, yeah, great. He goes, oh, I haven't got any. Yeah. <laughs> it was more rhetorical. Yeah, um, I appreciate the gesture, though, man. Yeah, I didn't appreciate the answer. Donald Trump is one of the worst human beings in the world, okay? So this is, I mean, this is a man that was sort of active in get the death penalty back for the, the Central Park Five, who was falsely accused of, of rape in Central Park in New York in 1989. This is a man who has said he could go out to Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he wouldn't lose uh, any votes. This is a man who has bragged about like sexually assaulting women. This is a man who makes fun of disabled people. Mm-hmm. This is a man who calls Mexicans criminals and rapists. This is a man who demonises Muslims, who wants to deport people. You know, This is a man who made a loss when he had a casino, which is almost impossible to do. He is, in short, an ass clown. He also gave me food poisoning once while at his hotel. And it's personal now. Yeah. yeah. So he's one of the worst people in the world. We know that. He's, I mean, we've, so everyone, the world has collectively woken up and gone, like, what? Um, or, however, we should point out that, you know, all of us saw it coming and Nate won money off it. I won a little bit of money, actually, £22.50. Oh, yeah. um, considering I called Brexit and Trump, I should have been, like, a bit more up than £22.50, <laughs> which doesn't even buy any tin goods. You put money on it as well, didn't you? Uh, I put a fiver on five to one, yeah. It's not so. bad. Yeah, nice little learner that. Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> We're all retired now, aren't we? Yeah. So we want anyway. So we were thinking, is there anything that wouldn't make us smug? You know, like the end of the world apocalypse, and we're like, mm, well, yeah. uh, if you read Marx, actually, you'll find out that it was <laughs> it was coming. But because a lot of pundits were like, you know, it, I take no joy in having called this correctly, and we we're like, speak for yourself. Like, took all the joy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's sort of a nihilism? Like, it's almost Trump's been elected. It was almost like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, anything's possible. What next? I, almost, I feel that there's all... Okay, it's easy for us to say in Wales and, you know, in the UK and Europe. It seems to me there's almost, like, the outrage should be more intense, but it just seems as if the way this year has gone, yeah, it's almost like people seem to just be so deflated. It's like, well, of course he would win. Mm. Of course he would win. Okay, so what we're going to talk about this show, we're going to explain it to everyone. We're going to put the issue to bed, as we normally do. We're going to solve it. First, we're going to talk some stats. So, turnout, first of all, between 55 and 58% this year, 2016, down from 586 in 2012 and 61.6 in 2008 under the heady days of the first Obama administration, whenever it came out. you got Trump won 47.4% of the vote, with 60.8 million uh, people. A lot in it. Hillary, 47.7% of the vote, 61.8%. Million. million or is it 61 million? 61.8 million alright okay well, yeah, there's not that it's, many people it's... in the USA mate I thought it was 318 million oh but given in the oh yeah there is 
my bad. <laughs> we had a big debate about the stats the next time. Yeah. You're doing them. Okay. What happened basically in the election is that Democrats didn't come out and vote for Clinton. So the Republican vote pretty much stayed the same. You know, Trump's not... An, he's not a political genius. Their vote has remained sort of constant. It's just the Democratic vote was down. It seems as if those people who came out for Obama in 2008 basically abandoned the Democrats. Didn't turn up for Clinton. Nath, race has been a pretty big uh, issue, obviously, all throughout Trump's campaign. So why don't you just hit us with some of these racial stats? Yeah, so the racial stats are, um, unsurprisingly, the honky uh, vote was the highest, <laughs> coming out strongly for Donald Trump. Um, you know, there's the honky messiah, the cracker king. Uh, so 58% of Trump, 37% to Clinton. Black vote was heavily in favour of Clinton as one might yeah, expect, sure. given the option. Um, she had 88%. Trump had 8%, which I still think is quite high. Sure, yeah. Uh, Latino one. Um, so the Latino vote broke down as Clinton having 65%, Trump 29%. And the same with the Asian vote, which was, again, 65% and 29%. So Trump, what happened? Um, Trump obviously has won some of the key states. He won, or swung the, you know, the swing states. won Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, Wisconsin. One of the huge things that's sort of blown over, you know, blown up on Twitter, obviously, is the, you know the, the class dimension to this. So, Sam, why don't you break out some of these? Uh... Yeah, so um, I got these stats actually. It was uh, a U.S. government research, and it was in 2016 of this year, and they tried to find which areas were most well used, distressed, and which were more affluent. So this is more sociological, it's more about how people felt. Okay. And there's a really huge correlation about who felt distressed and which areas voted Trump. I hope they represented the stress with like the munches, the scream, like... <laughs> yeah. I always yeah. think of that when I think of the stress, like... It's just rude, yeah. yeah. So, um, well, first of all, they broke it down by region. So uh, the South was the most distressed region, and the second was the Midwest. So, you know, Midwest is really the swing states where he won. So then they kind of uh, take it down by states. And nine out of the ten states that were most distressed voted Clinton. Uh, sorry, voted Trump. So you got Tennessee, Kentucky, New Mexico, Alabama, Arkansas, all these. But I think what's most surprising if you look at the cities, so three of the most distressed cities were in Ohio. So Cleveland, Toledo, and Cincinnati one of them was in Wisconsin, which is Milwaukee, and one was in Michigan, which is Detroit. So Put your hands up for <laughs> Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I do. So I mean, I, this is where I kind of surprised that they didn't see it coming. Where it's obvious that these people have been pretty miffed. What the the people that in these distressed states? Yeah. Well, I think what we were talking about before. Just like Brexit, there's obvious parallels with Brexit, and I mean, we, we've been talking about right wing. Seems like we're talking about right wing populism a lot, and obviously because it's an issue that's here to stay. You know, mm. hence talking about Trump because that's the way we are in the, an epoch. We have to choose now, be, literally between socialism or barbarism. Is what Mark said, and now barbarism it looks as like barbarism's on its way, mm-hmm. its way up. Really, um, I think one of the reasons, and this is quite a very basic explanation, said, why can't people see these things coming? The first and most obvious one is that liberals don't have any grasp of political economy whatsoever. So they think politics is all down to personality, triangulation, electability, things like that. So don't think about the changes in the economy. Don't think about how globalisation hasn't worked for people. It's created like new class fractions, things like that. How they don't think about how policies that Democrat, you know, that Democrats have initiated have 
left millions of poor people you know, desperate. They don't think about things like that. They just think politics is an episode of the West Wing and that if you're electable, then you're going to get elected. Another sort of related thing, I think, is that a lot, let's face it, a lot of these liberal pundits, they're not, they're middle class. They're not from these areas. They mean, none of them have any idea. It's like, it's like when Brexit was happening. And again, we all felt that Brexit would happen, not just because of the polls, but because we knew people who were distressed and upset. You're sort of a feeling for the depth of the anger that people feel, then you, I think you can see these things coming. But if you're just relying on polls, I mean, it sounds like, sound like philosophizing, don't trust polls. Mm-hmm. They are wrong because we, we knew that how, if you know how angry people are, then it's easy to, easy to predict these things. And another thing about the polls, it's very hard to do a poll, an accurate poll in the country of 314 yeah. million. Mm-hmm. You know, we surveyed a thousand people. <laughs> oh, well, you know, happy days. I sur- surveyed a thousand of my friends. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got a th- you got a thousand? Yeah, yeah. Across all social all. media, yeah, network yeah. sites, friend of all. And the other surefire way of working out and seeing how these things are going to come is that Dan Hodges said that Hillary Clinton was going to win, <laughs> and John McTiernan said Hillary Clinton was going to win. He I threw out there, didn't he, to help destroy the campaign in the final moments? If there was one surefire way of tipping the scales and balance to Trump, if you had to think of anything, it would be send a boatload of smug British <laughs> Blairites out there. And I've got this like image of like this, this like. Midwest and like you know steel worker factory worker blue collar guy that's like he's given Obama like his votes in the past he's not a racist he's a good guy and he's like on the fence his wife's a Democrat she's like please please vote Democrat he's like okay 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 she finally persuades him knock on the door <laughs> <laughs> who is it it's a guy with like it's a, it's a head of Labour students in like you know from uh, I know whatever he's like hi mate blah blah straight away his face drops and he's just like walks down to the polling booth like face Frothing. grimly set in a hard determination like scrolls like Trump on his ballot. What, what other surefire way is it to tip the election? It, I, it, make me, it would make me vote for Trump. Well. well you did, didn't you? I did, I did yeah. As a US but it, would, it really would. I mean, and, and, the, and the smug selfies they were saying, like, I'm with her. And, and it, it wasn't a fact. If you had to vote for Clinton, as a, if you're a laughing person, just like Brexit or the EU, you would do it whilst holding your nose. Holding your nose, mm-hmm. It's yeah. a tactical vote. It's the least bad option. Let's just not pretend she's a she was an amazingly progressive candidate. She's you know, she's a neoliberal <laughs> warmonger. It's a, I just couldn't I couldn't believe it when they were over there, sort of reveling in Clinton, especially the Welsh dimension. Like, she's got a Welsh grammar there. Like, so what? Yeah. Doesn't this sort of prove the point? You know, when we say, well, not we, but when people say, ah, oh, what's the point voting? Because they're both so similar. Because the point is that the majority of the Republican sort of you know elite actually preferred Clinton in the end. So that shows how little difference there is between the two. They would actually prefer to vote for another party because they're closer, because they both believe in this kind of wide branch of like neoliberal kind of globalisation, kind of quite hawkish, both of them really. Are you talking about Trump and... Well, no, the Republican establishment. Yeah, definitely. And Clinton. You made an excellent point and that's what we're going to talk about. We've been talking about why can't people see this coming? The Trump victory obviously has been a long time coming. I mean, it's 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 hard to it's, it's easy to think now like wow, it's a bit of a shock to the system. But I'm gonna read excerpts from an article as I do every week. Just yeah. <laughs> instead of doing my own work, I'll just read someone else's. So Charlie Post has written a phenomenal article in Jacobin magazine about the rise of Trump, and I think by reading it out word for word over the next two hours, it'll help. Um, <laughs> it'll help us understand the growth of it because we have to understand the roots 
of you know Trumpism, for want of a better word, have been a long time coming, and it has its roots in the splits within the Republican movement. So he writes. <laughs> Brent mused. Okay, so he, in 2016, a radical right-wing middle-class insurgency that began in the wake of the world economic crisis of 2007 to 2008 has displaced, at least temporarily, the hegemonic capitalists in the Republican Party. So you know, these, basically, it, the who controls the soul of the Republican Party has now changed. Donald Trump's nomination as a Republican presidential candidate is the most recent activist struggle for the leadership of the Republican Party that began in the aftermath of the global recession and the election of Barack Obama and de- Democrat majorities in both the US House and Senate. So, in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 global recession, the mainstream media predicted, and you know much to the left hoped for, a sharp turn to the left in public opinion and state policies. And what you see in America after 2008, just what you've seen throughout the rest of Europe, you've seen the death of the, the death of the centre... And for the first time in America, think how hopeful we were back then. You had Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. You have the union activity in Wisconsin. You mass strikes, labour action in a country where you know unions are traditionally well have been very weak for the last fifty years. Mm. Um, you see Black Lives Matter, the emergence of openly socialist yeah. sort of campaigns for the same time. Um, but what this was, it wasn't necessarily a move to the left. We just see like every, you know in Europe, in the UK, we've got a sharpening. You know, it, of, of the political polls, aren't we? We've got the gro- growth of the left and the growth of the extreme right. In um, in Graeber's book, the uh, Democracy Project, um, well, he he quotes uh, a sampling of Americans between uh, sixteen and twenty five, and he asks them which form um, of e- uh, economy do you prefer, capitalism or socialism? So thirty seven percent said capitalism, thirty three percent socialism, and the rest said don't know, but. In a place like the United States, which throughout its recent history has been so anti-socialist, it's the dirtiest word, you know, in the English language, for 33% of people to say, I prefer socialism to capitalism, we were hoping that that would be a radical change. For Bernie Sanders as well to um, campaign, well, democratic socialist, basically a dirty capitalist, but, you know, to use that word. Into a view socialist. Yeah. Yeah, and and attract so much popular support. Um, yeah, so what we've seen, you know, so we've, on the other hand, so we've got on the one hand, these growth of new socialist movements in the United States, as they have been across Europe, you know, Podemos, Syriza, things like that. But on the other hand, we saw the radicalisation of the older white middle classes around a right-wing populist programme that targeted people of colour, immigrants, women, and, but also they kicked off against the corporate establishment. So this, this is the start of the real split in the Republican movement, and if we remember, think back to 2008, it's, the, it's got its roots in the growth of the Tea Party, hasn't it? But it sounds such a nice name as well. Yeah. Because I like... My grand joined it as well. In America or just... Uh, she has tea parties around. Well, that's what she thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's bringing sandwiches and they're like, yeah, let's go beat up some gay people. Yeah. She's, like, she's like, oh, that's a bonus actually. And if everyone's got Wait, tired, I've got, I've got I've some scones. Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at the backgrounds from the Tea Party meetings, it's like a split between people who are like, this isn't what I thought it would be. Mm. You've got like neo Nazis there, and some people with like scones, and then they sort of. Um, what we I had. I saying that actually, my grandmother was in the Nazi party. Oh, okay. No, I'm not even kidding. She's in the Hitler Youth. Nice. Yeah, so just tied up a bit there. Nice. 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 Nathan's dark past. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so <laughs> the Bush and Obama administration's bailout of banks. I'm still reading from the thing, by the way, um, so I don't think I'm this. 
eloquent articulate normally you all know I'm not so basically Obama's bailouts to the banks after the recession was a catalyst for the radicalization of the Republican electorate and this is where we see the develop the growth of the roots of the Tea Party which began as an alliance between the grassroots rebellion of older white suburban small business people professionals and managers what we call the traditional petty bourgeoisie and the traditional middle class and elements of the traditional capitalist class you know bankers finance capital um, things like that and so the Tea Party started out you know, they were railing against corporate um, welfare and bailouts for undeserving people. So they started, like, this narrative about, you know, welfare scroungers, things like that. Um, in particular, it says, against people of colour who held subprime mortgages. So it was insertion of, like, a racial element into this the class warfare against the working class. Um, and so basically, the, you know, the Koch brothers, thank you earlier mm. for telling me they were called the Koch brothers because I've been pronouncing it cock for... Yeah. Um, K-O-C-H... So the 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 Koch brothers yeah. are basically these billionaire. South African. I don't know actually, but they're billionaire financiers of right wing causes in America, aren't they? Um, so basically, they finance the Tea Party, um, and obviously, you've got the finance capital, the traditional sort of elements of the Republican Party, were championing the Tea Party and this hard right element, as long as it meant the weakening of unions, you know, the further deregulation of capital, and basically more austerity. So. Stuff like this is fine, as long as it makes sure that my profits are still okay. You know, everything's ticking over fine. So it also says, capitalists are also happy to manipulate hostility to Obama's healthcare plan to force the Democrats to increase subsidies to private healthcare. So they filibustered, didn't they? They tried mm-hmm. to sort of block, try to block up and water down Obamacare beyond all recognition. Obamacare as well wasn't like the big socialist project. Perhaps some people think it was. Yeah, but it was because a lot of it was because they could just couldn't get it through. Mm-hmm. The way American politics is, it's like well, you can. If you don't have control of like the Senate and things like that, it's it's very hard to bear. Which uh, now Trump does, doesn't he? He's got. Yep. Um, he's he's the most powerful president in that sense, Republican president since 1928. Really, that was the last time all three branches of government were held by Republicans. Crazy man, absolutely crazy. So this guy could have more power, well, you know, than Reagan. Than Donald Trump Nixon. is in charge of the CIA. Donald Trump is in charge of the. You know, it's going to get the CIA to do those. Just waste all their time, like yeah. installing cameras and sh- like women showers and stuff. <laughs> The rise of a new populist right, which targeted immigrants, which targeted people of colour, and targeted unions. Um, this is basically the start of Trumpism. It's the radicalisation of the suburban middle classes. It's the radicalisation of elements of the working class in America. Older, white, native-born work- workers. So, again, capital, you know, the traditional elements of the, the, the Republican Party was more than happy to use this nativist, racist, and anti-union movement as long as their interests coincided. So this is an important thing, he says... However, the new right, so Trumpism, has an agenda independent of, and at times opposed to, that of capital, which brings us neatly back to what Sam's just been saying, in that why is it that throughout Trump's campaign, large parts, the traditional parts of the Republican Party, the armed forces, have come out in support of Hillary Clinton? So they're not going to get more experience, are they? No, no but it's, he's, because, he's, it's because... he's more isolationist, yeah. in the sense that... They don't care if you're a bit racist, if you want to deport people, as long as you keep markets open, exactly. as long as you keep globalisation forces. The second he says, I'm going to repeal NAFTA, and I just want to say NAFTA has been absolutely disgusting to Mexican people mostly. It's also affected people in the Rust Belt. But, shout out to the Mexican listeners, like. Yeah, Do you know what I'm saying? Now we've actually got uh, one Jamaican listener, uh, one listener from Jamaica. No I way. Don't know if he is Jamaican. That's amazing. That's yeah. Lovely. Thanks, man. Thank you. Cheers. Um, 
So, as just Sam, Sam just said, finance capital isn't... This is the thing. This is the clash. Finance capital isn't against immigration because it needs large, massive amounts of low-wage workers with no rights. So there's a, there's a constant tension within capital, which we see in the Conservative Party in the UK between the Conservative Party elements who wanted to stay in the EU and are saying we, we're pro-immigration, not because they're nice people or because, you know, they're cosmopolitan. It's because the way the current system works fits their agenda. And then you've got another element, which is more traditional, you know, using anti-globalisation language, which Trump's saying, saying like America jobs, American workers, saying we're not going to outsource things to uh, China, talking about tariffs, things like that. This is a massive problem for the traditional sort of side of the Republican Party. And that's why they came out and started basically saying that they were completely for Clinton. Because they, Clinton absolutely represented the establishment. Even though she's a Democrat, I mean, she represented fin- she represented finance capital. Well, she was the embodiment of Wall Street. She was the embodiment of the military-industrial complex. First lady, secretary of state, you know, she's done it all. Yeah, so it says, Trump... Okay, so a bit about Trump's... Uh, the history of Trump's campaign, and we'll go back to what we've been talking about. So Trump's obviously... His, like, you know, when he started, it marked a deepening of this radical right-wing element within um, the Republican Party. So it says, when Trump announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination in June 2015, few political commentators took his campaign seriously. With a field dominated by mainstream Republicans like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, who now seem like decent guys in comparison, um, which is almost impossible to... Jeb Bush, near the end, of just before he conceded. Seemed like hugging people and stuff. Oh, I do see. He was giving giving people little turtles. It's like slow and steady wins the race. It was so crazy. I have a little turtle. Imagine how awkward it is in the Trump like household now, like yeah. you know, two Georges are present, and then it's like Jeb's there, like Jeb hey. handing people turtles, so and they're just Jeb like get out. Jeb sits on the ch- children's table, <laughs> and he lives in the pool house. <laughs> what I don't understand actually is with regards to you know this, uh, just very briefly, this idea about the American dream is about who you are, it's not mm. about who your family is. You can always rise to the top. You've had. You know, Clinton. Clinton, that was president in the 90s. You got one which everyone thought was going to be president now. Well, liberal commentators anyway. You had Bush, so apart from Trump, they've been the last two presidents and were a lot of people's favourites to be the next president as well. Yeah. Um, Kennedy's. You had John Adams as well and John Quincy Adams. They were mm-hmm. the first... Uh, one named Quincy. Yeah. Quincy, Quincy, Quincy Adams. Yeah, you are right. I mean, it's, it's a joke, isn't it? I mean, Trump's a... I mean, but I mean, like he he speaks of himself as if he is the American dream, where yeah. he's inherited he's inherited he's inherited all his, his, inherited, inherited all his wealth and he's just spoiled. But it class, does play into that in sense brat. that like, you know um, he embodies he embodies like this American idea that capitalism works. He's and almost you can, you know, get he's out. almost a throwback to the old captains of industry. You know, so when there was initial the the initial contradiction or tension within capitalism was between landowners like the gentry and the new like merchants. You know, like people who own the mines and things like that who were like crude and brash like walked around with a cigar like whipping workers and things like that well, that's what Trump represents and he's yeah. just a, a bum what makes Trump unacceptable to the Republican establishment and their corporate backers is not merely his unabashed racism and misogyny or his casual references to his penis size and nor does their hostility flow from electoral calculations Trump it says is in many ways a radical right wing opponent of capital's dominance over the Republican party so this is a key not only does Trump express his xenophobia the xenophobia and racism is populist base, but he rejects central tenets and planks of the bipartisan, meaning Democrats and Republicans, neoliberal agenda that has impoverished segments of the middle class along with working class and poor people. 
capital is clearly uneasy with Trump's stance on immigration and their federal debt. So Trump floated the idea of trying to persuade creditors to accept less than full payment on loans to the US government. The corporate elite is even more disturbed by his ideas about foreign policy and global free trade. As we know, American hegemony and imperialism rests on their control of the globe. Clinton is more than willing to secure this with sort of military interventions abroad, things like that. Trump is more, as you know, rhetorically at least, has made noises suggesting he's more isolationist. He says Trump rejects the established US role in the world. It's well, so we'll get on to what he actually means in a minute. But it says that Trump seems to have made noises about rejecting a muscular imperialist foreign policy, ready to use military force to project, protect the global interests of US capital. Where there have been debates within the US ruling class over where and when to send troops since, since Vietnam, no segment of the corporate class questions the US alliance with the most stable capitalist power in the Middle East, Israel, the justice of the US wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, or the maintenance of nuclear hegemony, rather. So this is the common sense, if you like, of sort of American capitalist dominance of the world. And they were thinking that Trump is going to, you know, fuck all this up, basically. And Clinton obviously wasn't. By the way, I've just realised we didn't talk about the Electoral College. Yeah. Should we rewind or should we keep going and talk about the end? Oh, we just bring it in the end, I think, can't we? Bring it in the end. So we went, We should have said at the beginning, what you'll probably have noticed is that when I read out the stats at the beginning, Trump won with 47.4% of the vote compared to Hillary Clinton's 47.7% of the vote. So due to the the crazy nature of the American political system, Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote. I mean, how gutting is that? But she lost overall because of the idiosyncrasy of it. Well, Sam will explain that at the end. So this is what Trump allegedly represents, you know, this, this, this threat to the established order. But is he an anti-capitalist? You know, is he, is he a threat to the established order? You know, is he anti-establishment? Obviously, he's presented himself entirely as anti-establishment. What happens next? I mean, would you say he's anti- is he is he anti-establishment? In terms of going against Washington, he is, but he's very much part of the establishment. I mean, you want to see like you know, there's that kind of infamous picture of him and the Clintons just hanging out. He's, he's very uh, tied with the establishment, isn't he? He even said that during the campaign trail about how you know finance works in Washington. You know, big businesses can give money to politicians hoping they'll pu- pursue legislation in their favour. And, and he literally said, like, you know, what I do is I, I know the senators or, like, the congress congressmen that I know. So, you know, I've been, um, cash. I've been working on a Trump impression for a while, um, and I think I do a pretty good job of it, but one... You've got small hands as well. I have. <laughs> why do you, you point that out? Cut, <laughs> cut that out as well, though. Uh, I will when he's obsessed with uh, Charlie's... Uh, Uncle, yeah, <laughs> that is me. Like, um, can, can, I get, can I get your hands? Yeah, so I, I, I'm very ashamed of my small hands, but Trump has small hands. Um, but a big dick. <laughs> this episode, uh, okay. So I think this comes. This is one of the central issues in um, sort of world politics, political philosophy, but the nature of fascism. People have been saying Trump is a fascist. Um, what in my, in my opinion, that Trump isn't a fascist, but he enables fascists. He has fascist supporters white power supporters, things like that. But one of the interesting things about fascism, okay, is that it it builds itself as a radical revolutionary organisation, doesn't it? This is the... Um, the, the contradiction of, of capitalism, is a, of, of fascism rather, is that it takes people's discontent, it takes people's misery, as Sam said, these depressed states, and it works towards a seemingly 
radical future. But the contradiction of capitalism is it's fundamentally hollow. Uh, I keep saying conflating uh, fascism with capitalism. The, contra- the, the fundamental tension and paradox of fascism is how it presents itself as revolutionary, but then when it gets into power, like Mussolini, Hitler, it always leaves the state untouched. It doesn't dismantle the state. It works in fin- It works in tandem with finance capital. It works with big business. It many in many places it privatizes. Yeah. It's a corporatist you know ideology that sort of privatizes the state. So, and that is why, for example, if you go back to Nazi Germany, things like that, big business and elites who were initially scared by Hitler, will, once we realize, well, actually, he's gonna he's gonna leave things as it is after all his noises. Then a lot of businesses did very well out of um, Nazi Germany. Exactly. You know, Hugo Boss, Adidas, uh, Puma as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, and. Um, well, a lot of the car companies and things like that. Yeah. But, so, our good friend and comrade, Aditya Chakrabarti, the economics correspondent of The Guardian, he's just written an article which is about what is Trumponomics, what is Trump going to do next? And what he's basically said is that for all this sort of rhetoric about, you know, rolling back globalisation, American jobs, American workers, Aditya says, Trump is an outsider politician leading an insurgency of self-declared outside Americans. The white men who feel homeless in their own country and the coal mining and rust belt states states rather that got written off by both parties, but that won't produce outsider policies. A good chunk of the chunk, a good chunk of the Trump base consists of people who consider themselves to be losers from four decades of political and economic orthodoxy. But Donald J. Trump won't be the president who reads the last rites for neoliberalism, for the simple reason that the empty-headed narcissist has no idea what to replace it with. So you've seen that photo when he's in the White House and he's like sitting next to Palmer. He's clearly like, what? Like, what, what happens? Sure. That? Yeah, like, like it's, it's, what does the president do? Yeah, that was his yeah. first Google thing, wasn't it? Like, what does the president do? <laughs> Things like, what is a president? And stuff like that. Um, so, so most people are panicking. So Chakrabarty has said that people are emailing saying, oh, you know, you know, bankers are saying, what's going to happen? Trump's going to mess it all up for us. But Not what he's saying is that Trump is quite pragmatic as well as not really known, knowing what he's doing. Um, so this is a man who said just a few months ago in an off-record meeting at the New York Times, he told senior journalists that everything is negotiable. So, you know, do we really think this man is going to tear everything down and start again? He says, this is the Republic... So he writes, this is a Republican warrior whose most memorable photo is of him and his new wife laughing along with VIP guests Bill and Hillary Clinton. This All this makes him easily containable, the Republicans in the Senate and the House that he'll need to work with. So, Chakrabarty says, Trumponomics is basically old-fashioned. Among his top economic advisors is Stephen Moore from the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank last seen laying down many of the policy planks for Ronald Reagan. Sure enough, the policies of pure Reagan, slashing red tape and business taxes, a major tax cut in income, a repeal of estate taxes, and a hankering for high interest rates and sound money. So this sort of tax cutting will cost trillions. There's been an amazing thing on Twitter, okay, which is basically saying that Trump has already started to embezzle billions from Americans whilst in office. So there's a law that basically American presidents obviously have to give up all the business interests for starting office because otherwise they can write policies which make them rich. Trump hasn't. Trump just hasn't done that. So he says Trump will make millions. I mean, this can't be true. Trump will make millions from American taxpayers just in selling his airfare to the Secret Service on his private jet. So, so as president, Trump will fly on Air Force One but his family will use the family jet. Any secret service guarding them has to buy a seat on the jet. <laughs> okay, so, these are the costs. Regardless of how you feel about these policies, basically saying Trump 
could. So this, I guess, goes against what I did just saying. So the cost of both are enormously expensive. Trump's wall is going to cost twelve billion. Deporting or incarcerating three million undocumented migrant immigrants is going to cost one hundred sixty-five billion. So he says, without having spent a single day in office, Trump has, you know, Trump could cost Americans almost two hundred billion whilst funneling government government money for private gain. And this is the classic one. Trump was set to meet with a chap. This is yesterday. Trump was set to meet with the Japanese president, prime minister today. As of yesterday, the Japanese prime minister staff didn't know when, where, who to call for details. Just didn't turn up. Instead, Trump had time to sue Washington D.C. to not only lower taxes on his hotel, but to get a refund on the taxes he's already paid. He's also started to market the jewelry that Ivana wore during the uh, Ivanka, or whatever, uh, during the. Um, doing the thing so he's already started to just like <laughs> nakedly cash in on his position so it's not do you know when that thing when Rob De Niro came out and said he's, he's a mutt you know he was like and he said he's trying to game the country for his own benefit you know he could he could literally just be in here going like, I don't really care what happens I'm going to funnel everything into my businesses and make out like a bandit so is that you know it, it, maybe he's just going to sort of sit back leave everything to his advisors and just say well whatever as long as I'm going to make money that's, that's all that matters we don't know what's going to happen on defence, for example. He's made so many contradictory statements. Well, on the one hand, he says he's going to pull out of the Middle East because he thinks war is bad for business. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason it's bad. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, he says like he's going to stop ISIS. His master plan was just mm. bomb them. What I am scared of with foreign policy is that because he is an idiot, he's probably more than likely to just defer to his staff. Whereas Clinton, I mean, obviously, the thing is, Clinton is obviously hawkish. But I think she was wedded to this sort of low-intensity intervention, utilisation, special operation forces, drone warfare, things like that. So it will be a gradual, gradual escalation, I think, in the Clinton. Under Trump, you know, if he's deferring to generals who are like, let's go in and more troops on the ground, that, I mean, that's a possibility as well. So, But we don't really know what's going to happen. What's going to happen to you know people of colour? What's going to happen to migrants? And what's going to happen to women? I mean, it must be absolutely terrifying for these poor people at the moment. What on earth is going to happen... When the people who vote for Trump, the more hardline elements, just like the people who voted for Brexit in the UK and are voting for extreme right parties across Europe, what are they going to do when they realise that their boy isn't actually going to do the things he, he said he's going to do? If he doesn't build a wall, if he doesn't kick out migrants, if he doesn't rejuvenate the coal industry, if he doesn't do these things, what are they going to do now? So Aditya has basically said it could actually get, we think this is bad, it could get a lot worse if these elements who are already emboldened by things like Trump and Brexit. What's going to happen when, you know, the second depression happens, which it will? What's going to happen then? Yeah, I mean, I was going to maybe say that people just become we'll dis- we'll disillusioned again. And we'll, say, we'll predict it. Yeah, yeah, this is place bets now. But, um, yeah, become disillusioned again or not bother. Or there'll be a political party or a political movement further to the right and much scarier that people rally behind. I think it's more likely that they'll work outside the system. I mean, this this is what their way of saying the system hasn't worked for us, so we're going to try something new. If this something new doesn't work, I think they're more likely then to take things into their own. You know, you've already seen it. You know, people with guns going and taking over sort of you know government. Yeah. Oh, you know, those guys are awesome because they forgot. To, you talked about the ones who took over the only newest government building. The I'm, militia. I'm, I'm talking about the racist militia. No, but there was the that yeah, group. Yeah, that's what you mean. The group, <laughs> the group who took over a yeah, in, Ar- in, Ar- in Oregon. Yeah, and so what happened was they didn't 
pack enough food for like a, a proper stand-down. <laughs> so they started pleading with people on the internet to send them stuff. But yeah, everyone just kept sitting, sending them dildos and things. Oh, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the militia got sent. I thought it was quite weird. I mean, I mean I've been to Oregon. You don't think of Oregon as a militia place, mm-hmm. but I mean, every, every state in America has got a militia. Um, good song by gangs like that. Right, we talked about fascism briefly, and it's been thrown around a lot with Trump, hasn't it? We've just wondered what's going to happen if Trump doesn't carry out the things he, he said he's going to go through. So here's a thesis or another thing I want to talk about, which it's about the relationship between fascism and masculinity. We've talked about how people feel left behind and frustrated and things like that. But we haven't really talked about the relationship. I mean, we've already said that Trump's voters are all old, angry men. What's this got to do with masculinity, right? So I think it's worth talking about. Christina Wyland is this political scientist, and she's written a book on fascism and masculinity. And it starts, it's pretty bleak, actually. It starts with a quote, a quote, I, I can't speak today, I don't know why. It starts with a quote by T.S. Eliot, written just following World War One. It says, We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men. I'm stuffed after that pizza. Uh, <laughs> we are the hollow men, we are the, the stuffed, stuffed crust We are the stuffed men. Leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. <laughs> it is more profound than it sounds. Uh, I don't do it justice, obviously. You need some like Patrick Stewart to you read need, it. Out. You need like some kind of reflective gaps of, in between. Yeah, or a voice actor, not like, you know, when you're doing, do, doing a readout in front of the class. <laughs> we are the hollow men. We are the men stuff we're strolling together. Anyway, so what she writes is that fascism is hollow, okay? She says, T.S. Eliot, writing in 1925, talks about the hollowness of a generation of men who survived the First World War. You know, and many of whom then later turned to fascism in Italy and Germany. You know, Hitler's vanguard and his thugs, Mussolini's thugs, were World War One veterans, left behind by the system, broken, disillusioned, and what she says, absolutely hollow. They've had the sort of masculinity torn out with them. They've been feel humiliated. They haven't got jobs. And so what she says about, I mean, you know, Trump has mobilised a lot of war, of war veterans as well. And what she says is, it's not violence that characterises these men, but it's their hollowness. She says they've been hollowed out you know, they've been hardened, you know, made bitter by war, by economic slump. You know, if you look at like the Rust Belt and the people mm-hmm. you know, have been voting for Trump. Um, the interesting thing about Trumpism, and this is where it does have parallels with fascism, she says, fascism promises rejuvenation. It always talks about rejuvenating. Make America great again. That logo is pure. I mean, if you think about it, it's not, people say it's not overtly fascist, but it is in absolutely the fascist tradition of constantly talking about rejuvenation. These people who feel emasculated, let down, that can be transformed instantly into strength through things like war or things like... But um, she says, fascism is hysterically obsessed with revitalization. And if you think about the Trump campaign and the rhetoric they've used, the rhetoric around Brexit, take our country back, make America, America great again, it's implicitly acknowledging this idea of a hollowness or malaise the fact that people are being left behind and, and angry and it's constantly going on we're going to make it great again revitalising it's not looking to the future at all it's no it's just pure nostalgia back, harking it? back um, and nostalgia and that's, you, that's the same I mean um, the reason that the Nazis had a lot of eagles for yeah, example going back to their old, uh, uh, is for the because um, the Holy Roman Empire yeah. Was, yeah yeah you know so that was one reason the kind of the, the pure Romans the Aryans also with regards to you know before Versailles these things don't have to be true. These are all myths. Yeah, of course. Well, was America ever, I mean, great in the sense that Trump was talking about? 
No, but Probably it's not. but it's about this re- revitalization narrative. Or having and, that, like you know, um, dominance on the world stage. It still does have it, but I guess yeah, compared compared to say the peak of you know American dominance, it it certainly has. I mean, but then at the same time, like Great Depression, you know, like if you think if a you, lot of people lost out, like even I know America has, let's face it, left Iraq and Afghanistan with its tail between its legs. Yeah. So Vietnam. Un- undoubtedly, you know, um, Americans' position in the world is not as great as it was. You've got China on the rise, things like that, which Trump has always talked about the Chinese. So there is this, whether, as you said, Nate, whether it's, it was ever true, is is immaterial, really, because it's about the perception that we were once great, and, and that's where this rhetoric sort of comes in. So what she says, is there necessarily a link between what she calls, in, this is pretty powerful, internal deadness? Which is, is there a, <laughs> Yeah, but we're bad exactly. Yeah, between the people, like, is there a link between <laughs> internal deadness and a deadly ideology? And she said there's, there is a causal link because once you've been sort of hardened, hollowed out by things like that, then you almost lose your empathy in a way. That's when you can start blaming other people and you're susceptible to these, these, these horrible narratives because you yourself have almost lost a bit of your humanity. That's what she's sort of getting at. So earlier we were going to say, like, how, how is it possible? So this is like a brief 101. How is it possible that Hillary Clinton can win the popular vote but not win no. bec- not become the president basically and I was like googling it today because like, I don't really have a clue and I was on all these like children's websites like, <laughs> explaining politics to children it was really it was really good but I kept having to like close the screen people were like what are you looking at it's like it's like a coloured screen like this is a president you know this is America things like that so Sam tell us a tiny bit about the electoral college before we do showers and before we wrap it up and before we have a look at the right wing corner oh right wing bios yeah I'll yeah. get some up so yeah, just a little bit on the Electoral College. So basically, the Electoral College is made out of 538 electors, and these electors are usually kind of, uh, you know, hacks, party hacks that get chosen. But before that, is so when you vote in America, you're not actually voting okay, for the president. Okay, you're not voting for the president, you're voting for the elector. You're voting for people to vote on your behalf. Exactly, right. exactly. So the way that's worked out, there's 538 of them. So that's due to all 435 representatives, 100 senators, and then the three electors from Colombia. So the way that works is, for example, Wyoming, it's a tiny state, got two senators, and they get one uh, representative, so they get three votes. Somewhere like California, or you know, Florida, 29. So it's all weighted, basically. It's all weighted, which is supposed to help the smaller states against the bigger ones. And that's rooted in the history of the states, I imagine. Uh, yeah, so that's that's rooted in a few things. It's rooted in a... Well, if you actually look at the Constitution, the word democracy doesn't come up once. It's actually uh, written to kind of defend private property in the American... Oh, what a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe it. <laughs> I was shocked. They love private property, don't they? Yeah. It's property all about private democracy. property. So, well, so it's the idea of like having a... Instead of a popular mandate, they've got like a check and balance against that, basically. So this, that is, sense, this is a quote from John Adams, uh, one of the founding fathers. If all were to be decided by a vote of the majority, the eight to nine million who have no property would not think of usurping over the rights of the one or two millions who have. Oh, yeah. Debts would be abolished, taxes laid heavy on the rich, oh, and that's all on the others. And at last, downright equal division of everything de- be demanded and voted. Nice. So basically, he's scared of democracy and he's scared of social. And that's where the electoral college comes in. And that's where it comes from. We do the right. Okay, so given the fact that all we talk about is right wing populism, because sweeping the globe, we thought it would be appropriate to read out some right wing bios, which is my favourite ever Twitter account. So it's real bios from right wing Twitter accounts. P. 
pinned tweet. <laughs> Proud English patriot who likes boobs, cricket, dogs, football, golf, lager, Liverpool FC and rugby league. Dislikes Islam, paedophiles. <laughs> <laughs> Yorkshire born and bred. Leeds, beer, kids, wife in that order. Ex-national front member, UKIP, EDL. Britain is full, refugees not welcome. So what a nice, nice dude. Like. Um, support Charlton and Rangers. British and proud, anti-immigration and against Islamification of Europe. Forever winning debates versus lefties. That's your game, <laughs> Capitals, die-hard conservative, patriot, constitution supporter, fan of The Sims Online. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, that's enough. We'll do some. We'll do more right-wing buyers thing every week. We've sorted it out. We've solved the Trump issue. We've put it to bed. You don't yeah. talk about that anymore. We won't talk about it anymore. Let's st- stick to Wales because you know. We had to do some research on this, and it's hard, isn't it, to it research? Took, it took us a while. Um, I gave up, actually. Let's <laughs> let you guys carry it. Right. So, shout-outs. Anyone in particular? Nath? Uh, I was going to give a shout-out to Dennis Bilnev, who's a director I quite like. Who's not? Um, he's did Prisoners, which is really good anime. Sure. Uh, recently, he's done the film The Arrival, which I really liked. What's up, Dennis? Yeah, what's up, Dennis? You know, give me... Oh, he's doing Blade Runner, uh, the next Blade Runner film which I'm really excited about because it's my favourite film of all time what the, the new one or the other yeah, one yeah there's a new one uh, oh, the new one ain't out yet so it can't be his favourite film okay here are the thing, here are the people I need cha- uh, shout out to uh, shout out to DJ Chakrabotti met him the other night absolute dude well sung lad big yeah. fan of your work thanks for talking to us and things like that uh, it's just a bit was it cringe- cut this out it's a bit cringy really, but thank you DJ anyway um, Michael Sheen Absolute ledge. Thanks for Cheers, picking us up, Michael. Is it okay also if we just if I tell people that we're friends? I, I, <laughs> well, we are friends. All right, Michael. So how are you doing? Thanks to so. David. Thanks to David Club. Thanks to uh, Aaron. Thanks to Shruti. Um, and thanks to anyone that's sort of everyone that's been saying you know, keep up the good work and or who if you listen. Thanks very much for listening. And who's? Uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Joe Smith. Uh, thanks for helping us with the website. Nice and bro. Desolationradio.wales. I'll be online soon. Right. Uh, also, um, I put up a Facebook page, which has only got 20 likes at the moment. So oh, if Facebook's your thing, uh, you give us a like. And, yeah, that's yeah. good. Nice one. Right. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Yeah, see you next Cheers. week. Bye. Bye.
everything was moving so fast. So many lights and smokes. I was having a hard time keeping up with the steps. I just tried to keep up with the fellows. They were pretty good natured. A couple guys shoved me. The lady's screaming uh, for me to show my dangus. And then I thought we're all going to go back to the clubhouse and josh around some more. But all they wanted to do was talk to these ladies that look my, like my aunt. Pretty disappointing. Made me sad. They're supposed to be my friends, though. Huh? I thought they were just cool guys that were going to be lifelong friends, but they just turned out to be a bunch of hunks. Turns out, just hunks. Who wants to be a hunk? <laughs>